Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today's message comes from the Old Testament reading of Exodus, as you heard a few moments ago. You may be seated. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as we've been continuing our two-year journey of going through the Bible, you might remember that a couple weeks ago, we talked about asking God for a sign, praying to God for a miracle, and, and if you've ever done that. We, of course, see that miracles are around us all the time. Maybe we realize it. Maybe we don't. Today, I'm going to ask this question of you. What do you do in the face of miracles? Or to put it another way, how do you respond to miracles. Today we saw two water miracles. We saw God master water in two different ways. The first, and arguably the most massive, in size at least, miracle of water, is the crossing of the Red Sea, where the waters of the Red Sea are parted and the Israelites walk across on dry ground. The second is not walking across a body of water on dry ground, but actually walking on top of the water. As Jesus walks out on the water to his disciples. Now before we go any further, it might be helpful to define the word miracle. The dictionary calls a miracle an effect or extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers and is ascribed to a supernatural cause. Also, such an effect or event manifesting or considered as a work of God. So, an extraordinary event not able to be done by humans, but done by God. We could probably conclude that the parting of the Red Sea and Jesus walking on water fits that definition. Now, before we get to the actual parting of the Red Sea, we had seen the miracle of Passover. Before the plague of the firstborn, the painting of the blood on the tops and on the sides of the doorposts, so that when God took the firstborn males, those who had painted the blood of the lamb on their doors would be saved. This led Pharaoh to finally let God's people go. Because he, like many Egyptians, lost his firstborn son. And so as the people of Israel leave, which we heard was about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, we can estimate that the size of the people of Israel at this point is probably north of 2 million people. It took 10 plagues for Pharaoh to finally let the people of Israel go, which... You could call a miracle, because he did. And God had told Moses, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And that is exactly what happens. Pharaoh realizes what he's actually done. I mean, can you imagine? 600,000 free labor. Who's going to do all the work now? So he and his army chase after the Israelites. And at this point, the Israelites had set up camp, and then they see Pharaoh and his army closing in. 
And their response is, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Everything that Moses had done to free them, which was really everything God had done to free them, they're thinking that they're going to end up dead now. And what was better, death or slavery? A life of slavery. In other words, thanks for nothing, God. And what does Moses say? Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I like that last line. You have only to be silent. In other words, shut up and let God do his thing. It also reminds me of Psalm 46, which says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Which is exactly what he told Moses. That he would get the glory. He would be exalted. And the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. And as you heard, what comes next is, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. You read this, and and what do you think, since you weren't there? How do you respond to this miracle? Now, there are some that respond to the parting of the Red Sea, and they say, well, it's just not true. Because the Bible is just some man-made story, and so this is just some fictional story, some guy made up. Didn't really happen. Then there are others that try to explain away the parting of the Red Sea to say it was some natural phenomenon of, of strong winds that took place, you know, similar to the winds you'd find in a hurricane, combined with the, the tides going in and out. And the water's just pushed back for a time, a few hours, allowing the people to cross. But the problem is the place where they think this natural phenomenon occurred, well, the waters, they're not deep enough to swallow Pharaoh and his entire army so that they would all die. Now, of course, all of this doesn't factor in to what God's word actually tells us. And I mean, you'd have to read the story as an actual parting of the sea, as there are multiple references in God's word to the mighty waters. And waters that are only a little bit shallow and can't really be considered mighty, even if they become a wall of water. Also, God's word clearly tells us that it was the Lord who drove back the waters not some natural occurrence. This wasn't some natural phenomenon that occurred. This wasn't some made-up story. This was a miracle from God. Either God saved the people that day, or he didn't. And if he didn't, well, then you really must stop reading the rest of his word. Because here you're going to find lots of times where God saves his people.
Now, of course, we've talked about how you might respond to the parting of the Red Sea, but we also have the Israelites reacting to the party, parting of the Red Sea, to God rescuing them. And the reality is, their reaction, their response is short-lived. Because if you know the story of the people of Israel that is to come, which we'll read about in the coming weeks, they're in the wilderness for a long time. And their complaints become similar to this one as Pharaoh gets closer to them. God led them out of Egypt, saved them, but they respond with, cool, thanks God, but I'm tired and hungry. And sure, I mean, I was put to hard labor in Egypt, but at least I was never hungry. And I certainly never had to walk this far. It would have been better for us if we had stayed in Egypt than die here in the wilderness. Sometimes the way we respond to miracles is, what have you done for me lately, God? Do you ever feel like that with God? What have you done for me lately? Let's fast forward to God becoming flesh. And Jesus not parting the sea, the waters, but walking on top of them. The disciples are going across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had sent them on, and he was praying. And then during the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, the fourth watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. I also like how the next verse goes. He meant to pass by them. It was almost like Jesus was out on the water just having a little stroll, right? Probably passing by their boat, do-do-do-do-do, right? See if they'd notice. And if not, he'd keep walking, maybe come back around on the other side. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. And how do the disciples respond to this miracle of Jesus walking on the water? They're like, whoa, that's scary. It must be a ghost. They're terrified. It's only when Jesus comes into the boat, it's only when Jesus gets in the boat, the wind dies down, and they're okay. Even though they still don't get it, because their hearts were hardened. Sound familiar at all? So when you hear this miracle, how do you respond? Can a man actually walk on water? Well, there's certainly been plenty of people in the world that have tried to replicate it. They're not actually able to walk on water, let alone a sea with the wind beating down upon them. What do you say? It's too good to be true? I don't believe it? I mean, if, if you were a disciple, maybe you'd say, well, ghosts aren't real, obviously, right? So I can't believe what I'm saying here, uh, which is a ghost. Or do you say, can God do miracles? Can God do things that normal humans like us can't? Like walking on water, calming the storms, healing the sick. Or are these just man-made stories to make a really, really good teacher look like something that he's not? Because Jesus might be a really, really good teacher, and that's about it. But if we view Jesus as that, again, we might as well stop reading the rest of God's word. Because the most important saving that's yet to be done 
is through Jesus. And if he's nothing more than just a really, really good teacher, then he can't save us. And if Jesus doesn't save us, there's no salvation. There's no heaven. If Jesus doesn't die for us, there's no forgiveness. If Jesus doesn't rise for us, there's no eternal life. If Jesus isn't who the Bible says he is, there's no point in us being here. Our faith is worthless. It's meaningless. We're still trapped in our sin. And what we deserve for our sin is death. It's physical death. It's eternal death. What we deserve is hell. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, then we have no hope. If Jesus doesn't work miracles, you're wasting your time being here because you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. You are all dead men walking. Either God's word is actually the word of God or God's word is the word of man and it belongs on a bookshelf next to the rest of our fictional books like Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings and Robert Munch. Put them all together. Smelly socks in the Bible right next to one another. They both stink. Either God is a God of miracles or he isn't. And if we're going to take the miracles of Jesus as God's word, we need to take all of it as God's word, which means we have to get God's word right. The big stuff and the little stuff. So does God still work miracles today? And if so, how do you respond? Take a look around you. No, go ahead, really. Take a look around you. All right. You're going to see a lot of mothers here today. Would you say that babies are a miracle of God? Did God create them in the womb? Did he fearfully and wonderfully make them? Or was that all you? Does God give the gift of life? Or do you? When you think about childbirth, seeing that baby face to face for the first time, is that a miracle? Or is just that, that just a really, really cool thing that happens in life? Is it a miracle, moms, that you are still here after all of the children that you've had? After all the raising of them that you've done? After all the times they've made you want to say, I brought you into this life, I can take you out of it. Or is it not a miracle because you haven't been blessed with children? Is it not a miracle because your child never made it out of the womb? Or is it only a miracle for other people and not you? Where's your miracle? Where's your miracle? It's here. Now, I know that on Mother's Day, it's not great consolation, but it's the truth for everyone here. Mothers, those who have motherly roles. Fathers, those who have fatherly roles. Whether you're a great parent 
whether you're a terrible parent. Your miracle is here. Your miracle is you being here today. Us having God's word today is a miracle. Because God worked through generations upon generations to keep his word in truth and in purity, untainted, without error. Only he can do that. Is God's word the word of God or not? And if this is the word of God, then the big things and the little things, they matter. It's the details. And most importantly, it's what it actually says. And we care about getting the little things right. Because if we get the little things right, we'll get the big things right. And we'll see the acts of God for what they really are. Miracles. Although often we'll refer to these miracles as his means of grace. So we have the miracle of the cross, the death of Christ. Before we get to his death, we need the miracle of his birth. The Christ child, God becoming flesh. God becoming man, living a perfect, sinless life in order to be our sacrifice. The Son of God dies for his people, for our sins, as only he can taking the death that we deserve, taking our punishment, taking hell for us. Miracle. Then you have the miracle of the resurrection. The Son of God dies, and three days later he rises from the dead because his sacrifice was acceptable to God. He paid the price. He won our forgiveness, and he rises for us in order to give us the assurance that we too will rise that we do have eternal life, that he did win salvation for us, and that our faith in him is not worthless. Miracle. Speaking of faith, believing in him through the power of the Holy Spirit, just by hearing the word. Because we can't believe on our own. We cannot believe in him by our own reason or strength. Miracle. And then God gives us the miracle of baptism. God saves his people through water. Again. Now, when we go over baptism and confirmation, I'll bring the class down to this font. Some of you might remember this. And I'll say... What is this? And what is it? It's just water. So, and I'll do this, and I'll splash in their faces, and I'll say, how is it possible that water can do such great things? That's because it's not just water. It's the water combined with God's word through the Holy Spirit. That gives it power. As the words and promises of God declare. It's, that's how it's possible. 
that baptism gives the forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe. It's not just water. Miracle. And then you have the miracle of the Lord's Supper. So how is it possible that the bread and wine can bring forgiveness of sins? It's because it's not just bread and wine. How is it possible that Jesus' body and blood are truly present in the bread and wine? It's because God's word says that it is. And either we take God at his word, or we don't. Either the Lord's Supper says, does what it says it does, or it doesn't. And if it's just bread and wine, well, then it's not possible for bread and wine to forgive you of your sins. Just like plain water can't do anything special for us either. It's the bread and the wine combined with God's word that gives it power. How Jesus' body and blood are truly present because that's where the forgiveness comes from. As the words and promises of God declare. It's these means of grace, these miracles that God gives to his church. His word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, these are the things that matter for us. And it matters that we get them right. Because these are words, the gifts, the miracles of eternal life. And that's what God wants for all people. And he's done everything that he can to bring you to heaven. And it's all him. It's not us. And that's the miracle. So what do we do? Well, we shut up and we get out of his way. And we let God be God. We let him do his thing. And he does. This is most certainly true. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.